All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we welcome you here to yet another podcast from the apocalypse here in lockdown week whatever. Uh, how are y'all holding up? I mean, I've lost all sense of time. What What is a week at this point? Wow, that really had no following. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was expecting Sam to just like chime in right there with his own little <laughs> snippet, but I, apparently he just wanted to leave you hanging. Yeah, man, I, that uh, really no. did leave me hanging. That was rough. Anyway, uh, Sam, I really expected no. you to like get in there and cover and then follow up with a snappy comment, but instead we just have like three seconds of silence that I'm not going to cut. You got dead air. No, you better uh, cut that. No, I'm I'm just I'm losing my touch. Um, I guess that that's what's going on right now is we're kind of losing all sense of humor and um, I don't know tact. So just kind of I mean it's the apocalypse. What are you going to do? We're losing well, the ability to relate as humans, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do except for obviously become an alcoholic? Speaking of that, Stephen, what are you drinking? I. Uh, well, I guess, uh, apropos, I am having a, a bit of white wine. It is Bright Week, and I can drink alcohol again. Ho oh, ho, enjoy that uh, all you can. Sam, oh, I will, buddy, drinking? I will. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm drinking some uh, coffee with oat milk. Wow, okay. Oat milk. Well, I know. To be fair, oat I've milk. had coffee with oat milk before. It's actually not bad. I mean, I I'm not. Milk. It's delicious. I'm not criticizing the oat milk. I'm just saying, like, drop a shot or two of whiskey in there, my man. I know. I mean, so young. I've, I've got I've got work tonight. And so it's coffee at, what is it, 7 o'clock? Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Long night studying. Uh-huh. Mm. All right. Uh, as for myself, I am having some lovely Sam Adams 76 lager. You know, good times from the City of Liberty currently in lockdown. Um, yeah. Ironic. Ironic. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's get right on with the show this episode is the kickoff as it were to our newest reading series after our last fun times with after virtue by alistair mcintyre we are fully prepared to endeavor on another several hundred page book uh, sam what was the page count again page count is um 460 62 pages 462 pages all right, and Stephen, what's our title? Uh, the title is "The Master and His Emissary" by Ian McGilchrist. Uh, and and Stephen, I do believe we have a sponsor for this particular reading series. Do we not? Yes, we do indeed. Uh, our good friend Zach reached out to us and mentioned that "The Master and His Emissary" is an excellent read, and he'd love for us to do a take on it and offer to buy the books for us. So, thanks a lot, Zach. Thank you, Zach. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Zach. We uh, we shall hope to do the book full justice. And now that we've now, read McIntyre, we know what that is. Sort of. Maybe. Uh, it's we could have just weeks. read Aristotle. I mean, that's true. Like, really, we should have just gone back to the source. But uh, yeah. at least now we know why no one knows what justice is. Good. Yeah, at least yeah, yeah. At least we know so why then, we can, can never agree. So can we actually do it justice, given that we are living in the modern age? That's a good point. I mean, it's almost like we're living in an era where we've forgotten to have ethical conversations. And so therefore, we're going to dive into a book that deals with ethical issues yeah well, ethical I'm... issues and and the uh the disasters of modernism and post-modernity so i mean hey at least it's apropos oh obviously Brevin, you did forget one other important description um what's the font size of this book oh it's tiny uh it's very so tiny it's 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 very tiny so you know how how there's like 12 point font which is like maybe a little too big and it's like 11 point fonts like yeah you know that's pretty professional and then there's people who just make their their font size like six just so they could say hey look the font size is six and the book is 460 pages was 62. It? And 62. 
and 62 pages. And that's not counting the end notes, which this thing has an end note section like that rivals infinite jest. So this is a monster uh, uh, to say the least, but we will do our best to make it snappy and succinct. And the way we'll do that is by moving right along into the preface and introduction. We're actually going to skip the preface because it's more of a look back on the 10th anniversary edition. Um, so we're going to skip that and come back to that right at the end, perhaps. Uh, but let's hop right into the introduction of the master and his emissary. The central question of this book is, what is the relationship of the structure of the brain to our consciousness? And Ian McGilchrist focuses on one particular element of the structure, which is the difference between the right and left cerebral hemispheres. And his thesis is just that the structure is important, that it tells us something about how our consciousness emerges from the physical brains that all of us humans, most of us humans, you know, there are some brainlets among us, um, not going to name names, but that all of us have. So in regards to the right and left brain, I'm sure we've heard a lot of pseudosciences and cheap comparisons you know, right brain creative, left brain logical, right brain female, left brain male, et cetera, et cetera. And Ian McGilchrist wants to go through and just debunk and say most of the ones you've heard online are probably extremely wrong. They're not based in science. They're based on gross generalizations um, and oversimplifications. And his goal in this book is to look at what the actual neuroscience says, what we can actually determine via studies of various kinds, including people who have had various lobes of their brains impaired or destroyed via accidents. And all these reveal certain functions, distinctions, emergences that differ between the right and left that do tell us something about the structure of the brain and therefore, Ian argues, about our consciousness itself and our perception of the world. So his book is an attempt to dispel the inaccuracies, lay out the science as we know it, and then explore what that could entail for our consciousness. And there are some obvious things about the two hemispheres, right and left. You know that the hemispheres are contralateral, meaning that they do motor control for the opposite side. And as Ian tells it, there were some discoveries that sparked interest in the right and left split in the brain, such as the left being more associated with language, the right seemingly with images. But then later science revealed that both sides do both activities for the most part, that there's a more overlap than there is difference. And so interest dried up. The, the sides seemed redundant for the most part. However, he argues that this is wrong. And his book is an intervention back into this field that has been, he argues, abandoned somewhat, or at least has lacked a comprehensive thesis that he attempts to provide in his overview of the, of the current research. He says, quote, there is literally a world of difference between the brain hemispheres. Understanding quite what that is has involved a journey through many apparently unrelated areas, not just neurology and psychology, but philosophy literature and the arts, and to some extent, archaeology and anthropology, end quote. His thesis is that because of the asymmetry of our brains, humans live in two fundamentally opposed realities, two modes of experience that, in addition to cooperating, are engaged in, in his terms, a power struggle for our civilization. A key mistake that many people make, Ian argues, is that thinking of the brain as a machine makes them concerned with what it does. But the key is that the difference between the right and the left hemispheres is not what it does, but how it does it. And for our consciousness, that means two different ways of being. To paraphrase, 
a central theme is the importance of our disposition to the world and one another as being fundamental in grounding what it is that we come to have a relationship with. The kind of attention we pay to the world alters the world. We are partners in creation. So to go briefly back to the brain's structure, the differences between the right and the left hemispheres are not absolute, but he points out that small differences over long periods of time and in aggregate make huge differences. In addition, there's reason to believe that the brain gives control and resources to whichever side does said tasks it uh, assigns efficiently. So over time, small preferences given to one side means that one side and its way of interacting with the world can get built up and patterns can be established at the expense of the other. And he takes the point that the dichotomy, for lack of a better word, between the right and the left hemispheres are not universal. There are many people with who are the exceptions to this rule. There are many structures to the brain that diverge among human species with you know as many divergences as they have. But it is extremely typical, something on the order of 95%. So while his book is not completely universal, he argues that it covers a sufficient amount that understanding the patterns of consciousness that emerge from the structure of the brain, from the asymmetry of the brain, is sufficiently important to devote our attention to in terms of uh, the effects downstream of that. He tells the story of the master and his emissary, from which he draws the title, a short story that Nietzsche writes about, um, one of which the master being the right hemisphere and the emissary, the left hemisphere. Uh, and uh, we'll just play a short clip of that now. There is a story in Nietzsche that goes something like this. There once was a wise spiritual master who was the ruler of a small but prosperous domain and who was known for his selfless devotion to his people. As his people flourished and grew in number, the bounds of this small domain spread and with it the need to trust implicitly the emissaries he sent out to ensure the safety of its ever more distant parts. It was not just that it was impossible for him to personally order all that needed to be dealt with. As he wisely saw, he needed to keep his distance from and remain ignorant of such concerns. And so he nurtured and trained carefully his emissaries in order that they could be trusted. Eventually, however, his cleverest and most ambitious vizier, the one he trusted most to do his work, began to see himself as the master and used his position to advance his own wealth and influence. He saw his master's temperance and forbearance as weakness, not wisdom, and on his missions on the master's behalf adopted his mantle as his own. The emissary became contemptuous of his master. And so it came about that the master was usurped, the people were duped, the domain became a tyranny, and eventually collapsed in ruins. So that will be the overarching theme of this book, uh, which has two sections. The first is the neuroscience, which will buzz through just about as fast as we can. Uh, given that none of us has neuroscience credentials, background, or interest in gaining either of those uh, to the degree to which our commentary would actually mean much, we'll give you the best bits of the science portions and then move along. I mean, to uh, be fair, I did have a chemistry class in undergrad, so I feel pretty qualified myself. Oh, well, pardon me. Yeah, I know, right? I'm pretty pretty professional. I mean, I've been to a couple of epistemology lectures, so like, and they mentioned the brain at one point in one of those. Mm -hmm. And I considered very briefly becoming a biochem major and going into pharmacology. So, I mean, 
Really, I just want all scientists right now listening to us. I want them to feel how we feel whenever like a popular science will like try to disprove some philosophy bit. (laughs) Yep. That's Uh, it. Well, anyway, we'll go through the science. You can trust us and and we'll pull out the most juicy elements for you. Uh, As for part two, in which he dives more into the arts, literature, philosophy, anthropology, archaeology, uh, as as he promised. uh, I have no idea what that part of the book looks like. Um, so I'll have to tell you once I get there, but from the rave recommendations from several sources, I, uh, I expect it'll be quite the good time. So I think we'll give that, uh, more of our attention. Uh, yeah. So, uh, boys, uh, how we, how we feeling about this? You know, I, I really am looking forward to this, uh, this book. I've um, been told by a a friend that I, I trust his opinion pretty well, and he highly recommended this book. Um, so I'm I'm getting I'm getting excited about it. Also, I kind of made the 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 joke kind of like, you know, scientists, you know, like they're constantly trying to invade philosophy and I've actually I'm really impressed with this guy and he seems to have a fair amount of um kind of respect for the fields that he's about to engage in. He's kind of fully come up front and is like, "Yes, I am a neuroscientist. I am going into these fields. I have tried to do my due diligence and do all the research I can. I am not what could be set called an expert in these fields." So I welcome criticism from experts in these fields. and I hope that they help me push this forward, uh, which I, I really respect that sort of uh, kind of academic humility that he's bringing to the table. I really appreciate how he allows for both ways of meaning. He allows for you to both obtain meaning through philosophy and he, he acknowledges the importance of philosophy in actually applying these kinds of ideas. But he's also quite confident in the ability of science to explain a lot of it. Um, I know lots of philosophers kind of dismiss science or don't necessarily engage fully in where our scientific literature is today. And he's trying to combat that. I think that this book was quite successful in doing so, where he is able to incorporate very cutting edge uh, ideas about neuroscience, about brain structure, and then apply them in a philosophical light without feeling like he's just mashing two fields together needlessly. So I'm really excited for that bit. Um, I think it's very true that many philosophers don't bother to engage where uh, science is, you know, in its limited capacity and it's, you know, very particular ways of knowing what it can tell us about ourselves. But I also have to say the absolute worst thing that I can think of is a, is a philosopher with a few science facts that they think are the most important that they then try to apply to everything. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I've, I've had a, a rant about this and Sam knows exactly what I'm talking about, but anyway, I do. yes, uh, that's the worst. So anyway, mm-hmm. it appears Ian McGilchrist is, is doing his level best to avoid both of these things. Mm-hmm. Just hearing a scientist decry the absolute, uh, inanity of scientism, it was just such a sweet, sweet relief. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also, he's also got a very interesting, um, history. And again, this is literally from his Wikipedia page, but he's done a a, a huge amount of things. He started with English, actually. So he read for English um, at New College in Oxford, and then he switched to medicine, went to John Hopkins for neuroimaging, and then he was elected as a fellow at All Souls College in Oxford. This guy just checks all of my favorite boxes. Johns Hopkins, Oxford, All Souls, geez. Yeah. No, and and so I mean, if you're a fellow at All Souls, you're automatically brilliant in every area. And I think that he he I think he 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 definitely uh, earns that in the introduction. So yeah, for sure, it's a strong opening. I'm honestly, I'm the more I the more I read, the more excited I got about this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seemed he 
his idea really is a, a reasonable one that the structure of our brain like that that is what is presenting to us the world that is that is the medium through which we're observing this world and if if the medium is divided and is presenting us two different methodologies of approaching the world or of observing the world then yeah that's going to impact everything about us that's that's going to impact our our, both our, our epistemology but arguably even our metaphysics and this strikes me as a very important topic that will indeed allow us to know a lot more about ourselves and the world in which we inhabit yeah i mean i that's a i I agree with you there because what he's saying is that i mean and, and and kind of he he inferred what his critique is going to be later on is that he's saying that these two parts of our brain evolve in in concert with each other that they evolve to work together and so they work together by giving two slightly different perspectives and operating through two slightly different means and having different strengths and weaknesses now those strengths and weaknesses are as he says opposite of what pop neurology wants us to believe but there are differences and so what his critique is is that today we are ignoring those differences and we're not working together with them but rather we are focusing too much on the pull of the left side of the brain and that's leaving us incredibly vulnerable which i think he he brings up he starts hinting at it pretty early on um and it, it does the idea he suggests is rather terrifying that the left brain is particular or the left side of the brain is particularly good at getting itself in feedback sorry in getting itself in feedback loops uh such that it it likes recreating the world as it sees it and mm-hmm. in in so doing it's able to observe the world in that way and then it's able to recreate it more that way and it just, the vicious cycle keeps on going, whereas the right side of the brain doesn't really do that. Uh, so it is kind of a, a rather terrifying proposal that he he advances, and one that I think, yeah, indeed, is going to be really important to uh, find out about. The way that you, you know, described that made me think of the apocalypse scenario with the nanite or the robot or the android or whatever, whose only directive is to reproduce itself. Um, and, and it does so and, and, you know, until the world is consumed, until civilization is consumed or whatever. Mm-hmm. A left brain consuming and reproducing the world in its own image ad nauseum. Uh, that is the apocalypse. Ad infinitum, rather. You know, Need- Stephen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, take your place here because what this made me think of was um, David Foster Wallace. Yes! And this is why. <laughs> <laughs> And the way you phrase that is maybe it's just becomes so ingrained in you to think like him, or at least some ways like him. Hopefully not always. I'm so happy. Yeah, yes, you're, you're, you're welcome. So what I was saying is that this made me think of David Foster Wallace's This is Water. Um, and the reason for that is there's the one part of that speech when he said every stimuli in the world leads him to think that he is the center of the universe um, and everything revolves around him. And if you break down the world in kind of a mechanistic way, um, Miguel Crest points out, that's the logical conclusion is that we are the center of the universe. But maybe, I guess, and he didn't really give the alternative of what the right brain brings into that picture that negates it. He hasn't gotten there yet. But I think, or I'm supposing that it might involve some sort of all-encompassing perspective about kind of fluidity between other beings and objects um, in context of one another. Which from the Which, brief amount that he described in the intro, that would actually follow a lot, that the the right side of the brain is a lot more context-driven. Exactly. So um, it may be that kind of, I mean, again, uh, David Foster Wallace was not talking in terms of neuroscience. He was talking in a surely practical or, I guess, really experiential or philosophical light, but maybe he was getting at the same issue that Nagorokas is getting at, 
from a neurological perspective. I mean, he even has that that line in This Is Water where he says the, um, what is it, the, the brain is a uh, wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Um, I mean, mm. I mean McGilker said pretty much that exact same thing, except he said it specifically about the left side of the brain. It is a wonderful servant, it is a terrible master. Or it's a wonderful mm-hmm. emissary, terrible master. Yes. It really seems, and this is a side point and a transition as we move on to the next section, but it really does seem like so many of these great thinkers, writers, McIntyre, McGilchrist, um, Kolakowski, others. David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace. That there's a, there's a consilience of ideas that they're all talking about almost the same thing, but slightly differently. And if you could just somehow figure out what each of them are saying in the other's languages, you could combine it into some kind of, I mean, as I said, uh, into a consilience of knowledge, as E.O. Wilson wanted to do. But at the same time, if someone ever tried to do that, it would obviously be reductive and a failure. But it, it, it's, it's so frustrating that all these people are talking. Are so close. Are so close. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, but you can't reconcile them. And like trying to reconcile them would destroy the whole project completely like all of them mm-hmm. individually and yeah oh, at, at the same time though there is something delightful about the fact that even if we can't quite touch it the, there still is some sort of central uh, theme that all of these different writers and thinkers are pointing at they're all just kind of dancing around it and there is something both frustrating about not being able to synthesize it and compile it all and be able to you know, actually approach, well, actually reach this thing. But there is something so delightful about the fact that at least they're all approaching this one central idea, this one central concept. And I think there is something kind of hopeful about that, or maybe not a central concept, but a central locus of concepts. And I guess that central locus of concept is the problem with reading. Hey, Hey, this guy. (laughs) Look at this guy. All right. Well, I know okay. that we might be running short on time. Would would there be a chance that I could record a couple quick, not critiques, but concerns with the intro? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Go for, for sure. it. I think yeah. that's, a, that's definitely going to be a, a good piece to do. Okay. Well, I have two two kind of concerns and then maybe one one piece to add. is The first piece is that, Brev, I'm not necessarily sure that he was talking. He didn't talk, at least in, in what I saw the intro. It didn't seem like he talked too much about consciousness, but he was more general with Tur- when he was saying that the structure of the brain leads to meaning is he didn't necessarily specify what that meaning is yet. And so I'm, I guess I'm not fully sure that he's going to be talking about consciousness as much as just ascertaining meaning about our human experience. But regardless of that, I do have two concerns from the reading of the intro is the first is that in the, the latter, probably third of, of it, he, he spends a lot of time kind of caveating his work and saying, well, there are really lots of different experiences. and This isn't universal between brains. Every individual has their own brain structure. Also, um, you know, the, the, the brain uh, parts generally share duties and the differences are quite slight. They're important, but they're slight. And that's a good caveat. It's containing his work. It's keeping his his um, arguments sounding reasonable. The concern I have is that maybe this is an attempt for him to, I guess, give himself permission to make rather large statements later on in his work. And then any critique to them saying that they're way too large of a statement to make about, you know, how the structure influences Western civilization. Um, he can just respond to those critiques by saying, well, no, I'm not really making that large of a claim. Look, the differences are really quite slight. Um, and look back to the intro. So that's just kind of the, a concern. Uh, so you're, you're anticipating a uh, classic Mott and Bailey fallacy. Yes, <laughs> exactly. 
Nice. Uh, what what is that fallacy? What making like a grandiose claim, <laughs> adding some like footnote that says, but this, you know, uh, like I'll walk it back slightly. And that way, anyone who attacks a centralized claim, you can say like, oh, I walked it back. So why are you attacking me, bro? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's making a controversial big claim. And then when challenged on it, you retreat to, but I was just saying, and then make a small and very defensible claim. Gotcha. And then, I, but then, and then when you win that argument, going back to your original big claim. Gotcha. I want to say that he addressed that in the foreword. That because I, I, I think this mm. this critique has actually been leveled on him, but I can't find it off the top of my head. But regardless, it, unfortunately, with that sort of critique, it's it's a difficult one to recover from because if indeed you make these massive claims and then try to walk them back, it's like well, at best. You walked it back, so your claim wasn't really all that interesting. Or you like your only other option is to fall back on that fallacy. So I, I think that's that's a fair um, concern to have. I hope that that's not the case, but it's definitely a fair concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's. I mean, we'll see where he goes. Based on his, I mean, first of all, the recommendations I've gotten from about him, and based on the the way that he's written the intro, I don't anticipate that. But that's just kind of a rhetorical concern that I I watch out for. Um, the second bit, and this is just me being maybe a philosophy snob, is he says he he gives this quote from Nietzsche that Brevin has dramatically um, uh, read and put to music for us. Um, the problem is that that's not anywhere in Nietzsche. No one's, it, 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 um, nobody Wait, has really? ever found that. No, um, I did not know that. Yeah, it's a it, and and. I, I was concerned because I read that. I'm like, oh, interesting, Nietzsche, fun. And then, I, and then there was a reference to the footnote section. I went there and the footnote was, let me just find it. You can cut this, finding it out. And this is literally me being just um, very, maybe OCD or particular. Well, yeah, he says very roughly indeed, is, and I cannot remember where. And I cannot now remember where. It turns out it's nowhere in Nietzsche. Nobody's ever found it in Nietzsche. Um, Wait, so he couldn't just Google it and find it? Apparently or like sla- slash find out that it wasn't Nietzsche and then say, hey, this is this is a quote I found somewhere, forgot who it was, so it's yours. Let me know. Yeah. So there is that problem. Is it's like as I'm I, I, I am excited to read it. I like everything that he does. I'm just I'm just going to call out the the the, the um sloppy attribution in that point. You like everything he does except misquoting Nietzsche. Except misquoting Nietzsche because That's definitely fair. Nietzsche was incredibly he's got a a consistent and powerful corpus and to add something into it um is to alter that it's just not necessary it's not necessary and also it doesn't sound like nietzsche when you read it again i mean the parable like nietzsche does do a lot of parables and stuff but yeah at the same time Mm -hmm. it really isn't like related to any work nietzsche does uh, arguably yeah also also, like none of the characters in this are really characters that nietzsche would have upheld or partially critiqued if anything he would want us to be the emissary right i mean yes but the emissary's view is painted as the bad guy yes yeah Yeah. so what i was seeing on different pages online was people people were saying well it's probably some kind of like chinese proverb or you know some some Mm -hmm. proverb from somewhere that he picked up um maybe it was german and he somehow attributed to nietzsche we don't know but it definitely is not nietzsche good to know concerning your um your critique a la uh consciousness at the very least i appreciate the fact that he uh he was is very harsh on the view that consciousness is a myth um which uh was a nice little stab at daniel dennett so Mm -hmm. i at least appreciate that he's not going to go and say oh by the way consciousness is pop psychology yeah yeah i'll i'll that's good probably 
cut this, but the the reason that consciousness is relevant, as far as I understand it, is there is an, I'll say, relatively undeniable link in between the structure of various parts of the brain and our experience of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And therefore, from that, it would seem to follow that our experience of consciousness is likely influenced by the structure of the brain. Uh, therefore, the structure of the brain is relevant to how we experience consciousness. I mean, this just in, my nerves on my finger are related to my consciousness. And when I prick my mm -hmm. finger, my consciousness experiences pain or experiences yeah. pain that is delivered through the nerves from my brain. So like, I guess with that one, I just kind of shrug and say like, oh yeah, totally. I, I'm, not, I'm not overly concerned about that. Yeah. Unless I'm missing something. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and cut probably everything mm -hmm. in between oh. someone speculating that he got it from a Chinese proverb and do my transition here. Um, Fair enough. Although <laughs> I do like the, I, I may cut this later, uh, may cut this later. It reminds me of the like, I'm uh, you know, new photo may take it on later. <laughs> <laughs> photo felt cute. Felt, might take felt cute. <laughs> might take it on later. Might delete. Um, yeah. Might delete. Um, okay. You know what? Let's just, well, God damn it. See, because I don't know what I'm going to cut, so I don't know what my transition is going to be. You can record uh, your transition later. No, I can't do that. Uh, We're podcasters. Okay. We have integrity. Yeah, we just give it what it is, and, and uh, except when we don't. All right. Yeah, uh, except well, many, many anyway, times we don't. Uh, speak, okay. Well, anyway, speaking of getting things from Chinese proverbs, uh, let's move on to our article, which is uh, entitled Suspending the World Health Organization Funding Should be just the the beginning by Lyman Stone in the Dispatch, and I just want to say I am grateful for you bringing up this article because now I'm not the only one that's making what could be a uh, very bad mistake that in three weeks, looking back, may uh, not age so well. So thank you, Brevin. <laughs> I am not going to have to walk this back because the WHO is garbage, and this article very uh, succinctly and powerfully explains why uh for our listener uh over the course of our reading series we will <laughs> likely be truncating our normal three article section into a single article by a single uh lovely host or or co-host um to uh, keep this a little bit more snappy and give and give us more time to focus in on the readings uh so for this article uh as stated uh, before by Lyman Stone in the dispatch. Uh, I don't want to run through the whole thing, but there are a few things in this article that I thought you don't see in the usual discourse that Lyman gets at uh, as an economist and statistician who studies China uh, and such. Um, and the sort of impetus behind this article is that Trump, of course, uh, President Trump an announcing the suspension of U.S. funding of the World Health Organization, uh, which Lyman concludes is long overdue, given that the WHO has been a, quote, ineffective and wasteful organization in desperate need of reform for at least a decade. Trump should go further going on the warpath against this organization and committing to reforming on it one way or another, end quote. Uh, obviously, whether or not... Um, the leaders of our country have the fortitude and commitment to follow through on this beyond the defunding is beside the point, but Lyman thinks that reform is desperately needed. And the first thing that he strikes at, which I think is just very helpful, because I listen to a lot of politics podcasts, and on a lot of them, you hear this just sort of line, almost like a mantra when uh, like uh, one is left, right, and center, which I enjoy quite a bit. And on the latest episode uh, released last Friday, the person standing in for the left uh, was commenting on Trump's defunding. And the only line that she had about it was, I don't think we should be defunding the WHO during a pandemic. 
And there wasn't any particular defense of the WHO. There wasn't any saying, and the impact will be X, the impact will be Y. It was just World Health Organization. That sounds like a thing that we should fund during a pandemic. And so Lyman's first project is to sort of debunk the image of the WHO that most people have in their minds, which is they envision this international legion of doctors who fly into crisis uh, hotspots and address needs. But he argued, but as he uh, points out, that's not actually what the WHO is. It's basically a vehicle. It's like a it's like a communication and conference organizing vehicle that brings together various researchers for conferences every year and spends you know five to twenty percent of its budget on travel expenses alone. So much of its work is simply exchange of information, which can be good. However, that exchange of information. One, doesn't happen at the speed that a response to a pandemic actually needs. In other words, it's more uh, background work for other long-term projects or uh, things that are less urgent. And the other issue is that much of the information that came out of the WHO, especially as it was trialed by fire in this COVID-19 pandemic, was misinformation, often politically motivated. So Lyman says that the exchange of information that uh, the WHO helps is useful and beneficial. But especially as we've all recently learned, it's not totally clear why it couldn't be done just as effectively over Zoom as opposed to spending uh, $600 million on travel expenses to fly people into Europe. Furthermore, the leadership of the WHO is incredibly suspect. Uh, the current uh, director general of the WHO apparently continues to assert that three separate outbreaks of cholera in Ethiopia, his home country, under his watch, were not cholera at all, but simply, quote, acute watery diarrhea, end quote. And Lyman concludes that his active complicity in covering up not one, not two, but three separate outbreaks of an extremely dangerous disease brings up a lot of questions about the efficacy of his leadership. The previous head of the WHO, Lyman argues, was just as bad who was representing China and called North Korea's healthcare system, quote, something other countries would envy, and also said that their lack of obesity was uh, a big plus for the totalitarian state. There's also various moral issues that sort of have long pointed to the WHO's political corruption, uh, but also have become more poignant recently, particularly the exclusion of Taiwan, which were one of the best uh, who have responded the best, at least as far as we know so far, to the coronavirus outbreak, as well as uh, the fact that in January, WHO officials were still maintaining that COVID did not have human-to-human -human transmission. Taiwan had already concluded that they were, whereas the WHO officials were simply parroting the Chinese officials' line. And so while the WHO's primary mission, Lyman says, is to provide information which can be extremely valuable, in this one area in which they are supposed to have the most expertise, because as noted, they don't have legions of doctors that parachute into hotspots, they instead parroted Chinese false claims about the disease and didn't criticize the various actions that China took, including silencing the doctors who uh, raised the first alarms. So the long and short of it is the WHO is first and foremost supposed to specialize as an information and communication organization. But in the one area in which it's supposed to do well, it has utterly failed. Uh, he says, quote, the popular image of the WHO is simply wrong. It is not a crisis response organization. In a moment of crisis, the crack team of doctors flying to the rescue will come from Doctors Without Borders, which has five times as many staffers and a travel budget a third as big, 
not the WHO. The WHO will send team will send a team of suits to stay in a nice hotel and act as government consultants and then show up with a new vaccine a year after the epidemic is over. And so he concludes that defunding the WHO is fine as long as it comes with the conditions of allowing Taiwan back in, uh, resignations of the of all the senior staff who bungled the COVID-19 affair, that they stop parroting Chinese lines uh, such as endorsing Chinese traditional remedies as a treatment of the virus, um, at, you know, shutting down the Chinese uh, government propaganda rumors that uh, the virus originated outside of China, such as with the U.S. military, and speed up its one essential task, which is reporting. The short version is, is that it's a suffocating entity that crowds out better voices from speaking. So at best, currently, the WHO is an opportunity cost, and at worst, it's a huge political misinformation liability. Yeah, uh, this this article did have quite a few uh, very impressive uh, bombshells and uh, gut punches to the uh, WHO. Uh, the the one that really got me was Taiwan, where again, like with all of the kind of ostensible corruption in leadership and like really questionable uh, leader that tries to insist that a cholera outbreak isn't a cholera outbreak. Uh, at least you might be able to hand wave and say like, well, but they're just there for information spreading and maybe they helped us out with information spreading with COVID. Like maybe that's, that's why, you know, social distancing started getting enforced and all that. And then you read about Taiwan, you know, begging them to, to take this seriously. And the WHO just kind of uh, waving them away and saying, no, you're not a member. So you're not, you're not allowed to, to, you know, handle this, especially like Taiwan was, was on top of this thing. What was it? Two months uh, in advance? Uh, or two months ahead of uh, ahead of everyone else. They said January twenty fifth. They placed extreme travel restrictions before anyone else. Right. Okay. So maybe not two months, but a month or about a month, month and a half. Well, regardless, Taiwan was well in advance of everyone. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of shameful that the the WHO did not cover that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed this article as well. It definitely. And I mean, this is something about the dispatch that I've I've liked since in its short life lifespan and obviously it's run by by two individuals who i have followed for a while and greatly appreciate the, being stephen hayes and jonah goldberg but um this article kind of seemed to give some kind of meat to the critiques of the who that i've been hearing for a while um mainly circulated by like more bombastic um right-wing kind of ta- you know talking heads basically and i'm and i'm not i, I guess i i just kind of passed by those because i hadn't assumed they had much credibility and this kind of gave a little bit more meat to that and some some more concrete examples beyond just its bureaucracy it's it's uh you know a transnational organization therefore it's bad let's get rid it's of it it's globalist blah 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 yeah. yeah yeah this was actually i mean and i i i like the end of it where he kind of gave some realistic policy solutions and was saying look I mean, this defunding, especially during a critical time this can be really good to be able to bring about some necessary change um I think that's a great political move to make. The problem is that I don't think that Trump is ever going to do any of those things. And I don't think it's realistic that I can't imagine anyone in the United States administration who would step up and say, we want these, you know, any one of these reforms to happen and we'll return the funding. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I I concur. Although I'm not necessarily in agreement with um, it being a good political move now. I mean, if anything, it seems to paint Trump as the bad guy that's like actively mm-hmm. working against global attempts to calm COVID-19. Um, it's like, this is the one, yeah. like, especially to pop- popular perception, the WHO is like hugely, uh, or is, is vastly superior uh, to other organizations and is 
like the crack team of of doctors that are going to take care of this. And Trump has just said, yeah, I'm going to eliminate that crack team, by the way. Um, even, yeah. if, even if that is incorrect, that is not what public perception is. And I'm skeptical on how many people would actually inform themselves of that. Well, like to shift to the political even more, I mean, it might be a good political move because <clears throat> it speaks to his base who already are skeptical of WHO for globalist, for, for anti-globalist and hmm. um, kind of pro-America points. And so he doesn't need to demand reform because him just ceasing funding is enough to energize that crowd to say, look, this is our guy who's going to stand against the the evil globalist empire um now that's their point so wrong reason but still arguably right effect well maybe right initial response but i think that without the the funding without the conditions i think it's probably the wrong response oh Um, right yeah it's it's not good to just defund the who it's defund them and then say hey here's how you get the funding back get rid of these clearly corrupt leaders start Mm -hmm. you know enforcing a budget that isn't 20 percent you know cushy hotels let's you know get your crap together and we'll give you the money back i i more or less agree with that assessment the only caveat that that is my thought that wasn't in the article is is simply that there is the active question of how much the who is an opportunity cost in terms of a organization with international legitimacy to speak on topics like this because right now, if you look on every YouTube video that mentions COVID-19, if you look on every Facebook news post that does uh, stuff about COVID-19, there'll be a little banner underneath that'll say, here, go to the WHO's website to get accurate information. But the thing is, it was that information was incorrect. That information was, I mean, for lack of a better term, manipulated in the opening weeks of the crisis and only later became more accurate as the virus became more widespread and it was essentially too late to do anything about it. So the, the well, wait, question- was it incorrect or was it manipulated to be incorrect? Because a perfectly legitimate organization can study a virus, get something wrong, but you know, time is still of the essence. And so it's more important to like get results out, even if it's tentative. And then eventually you realize, Oh crap, we were wrong. Here's actually what, what the facts are. If not incorrect, then it, it did not do due diligence in terms of the information it was receiving from Chinese sources. I see. Okay. More, you know, paying obeisance. Oh, what is that word? Uh, paying whatever, just taking them further word, uh, when, when more due diligence was needed, especially with doctors being disappeared and such. I see. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the WHO emerges from this regardless of funding how much its image is tainted or um you know bolstered uh after this pandemic because i don't necessarily know of anyone who's like oh yeah the who has done an amazing job of handling this um yeah so anyway it'll be interesting yeah that is interesting and that's kind of i guess maybe my my pessimistic concern is that we have an opportunity here where we've got i mean like steven said kind of a trial by fire moment of for the who um where it's going to get tested and it's being tested right now and it's clearly failing and i mean even the failures with Ebola and Zika were kind of, and um, and cholera in um, in what was it Haiti were kind of able to be brushed under the rug because they were more geographically contained. This is a worldwide crisis where it's mishandled it on multiple levels, and so I think that, like you're saying, I think that and you know if if things went on as normal, we would walk out of this crisis, and one thought in most people's minds would be, why did the WHO handle it in that way? 
as it stands right now, with Trump just defunding it without much of an explanation, now we have two camps. We have people who feel like because Trump did that, they have to defend the WHO because Trump did it, so it's clearly wrong. And then we have a camp who, because Trump did it, it's correct. And we have nobody looking at the actual impacts of the WHO and seeing, well, it's an organization that we should have. We just need to reform it in a few ways. I guess my pessimistic take is that nobody wins from this. Yeah, I think you're correct in that uh, diagnosis of that situation. Any sort of move by Trump in this case, I mean, generally any sort of move by Trump, period, yields one of two results. His followers just you know, foaming out the mouth saying how great he is, and then his detractors foaming out the mouth saying how evil he is. So I, I, there's almost part of me that's just, just that just throws my hands up in the air and it's like, why offer any explanation? Because his followers don't care, his detractors don't care, and you know, there's a few of us that would like to have, you know, reasons behind his actions, but uh, you know, that it, it, politically, I'm guessing that there's there's not enough of us to offer us any reasonable explanation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what the dispatch is trying to do. Like that's their whole their whole mission is they're like, look, we are a group of conservatives who want to be able to talk about current events and talk about the news and share the news and share stories that are interesting to us and we think are valuable and not through this lens of everything having to support Trump and be all about Trump constantly. I really like that project. Is it, This is a new magazine? No, I, yeah, so I, I haven't seen this. Okay, so Dispatch. A little plug for the Dispatch because I think that they're good and maybe our listener might enjoy them. It's uh, so Jonah Goldberg um, left National Review last year, um, and he joined up with Steve Hayes, who used to run. Um, I always forget the name. One second, and we'll splice this out. Um, weekly Standard, Weekly Standard, National yeah, Journal. It. it was a Weekly Standard. Stephen Hayes used to run the Weekly Standard, and the Weekly Standard closed down about two years ago. And so him and Jonah Goldberg have gotten together along with a few other people. David French is in on this. Um, and they're all doing this new project that's online. And it's a magazine run. It's like conservative news, but by a bunch of moderate conservatives who are also former never Trumpers. Nice. So I mean, they're conservatives as conservatives should be like, they yeah. they aren't it. I feel, because I feel like the, the conservative party has uh, somewhat morphed, and it sounds like these guys are kind of trying to say, hey, let's get this back on track. Exactly. And that's their whole idea is like, let's see if we can create something new that's an alternative, basically the polar opposite of Fox News, instead of just being stories to to bolster currently existing um, views that you have. These are stories that might be interesting to you and might be things that aren't necessarily picked up by mainstream media just because stories that are interesting to conservatives might not be the things that are interesting to mainstream media. But hmm. they're also coming from a variety of perspectives um, and kind of different sub, I guess, sub views under the banner of conservatism. But they're, I guess, it's still written by conservatives. So it's, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but I, I think it's a good project. I think it's a worthwhile project. I'm also really, really not sure if it's going to make it. Well, uh, I'll definitely be giving it a read. And uh, yes, indeed, our listeners should uh, should give it a shot because this article was, as much as I made fun of it uh, at the beginning of it, it, actually, it was uh, quite well written. Uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, definitely give it, a, give it a check. Yeah, check it uh, out. But also part of the problem is that you can see a few free articles, but they're mostly a subscription service. Uh, that is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. This one particular article was free, which was nice, but mm -hmm. well, uh, listener behind the scenes, uh, Brevin appears to have dropped off of uh, the discord, but he's told us to nobly sojourn forth, uh, to carry on the, the good fight. Uh, so 
we are going to carry on to rants. Uh, Sam, what have you got to rant yeah. about? It is basically, um, I have a problem with the word problematic. And what I mean by this is I just, I had a, a conversation with a group of fellow philosophers at um, my school via Zoom. We have these bi-weekly meetings where the philosophy department and any interested students get together and talk about philosophy. And it's good fun. It's excellent to see old friends, um, you know, professors who I love, and it's always a good time. But this last week, I guess I was I was incredibly frustrating because we asked the question about whether you can separate art from the artist. And the only, and every single response was dealing with, well, how problematic is the art? And after about 10 minutes into the hour that we ended up discussing this for, I realized there was nothing I could say because the phrase problematic was so reductionist um, in its argument that it, it made it impossible to have a discussion. So all I'm, I guess my only rant is how frustrating making objective claims um, with, with the, with the um, arbitrary label of problematic on them really can shut down um, intellectual discussion and productive debate. That's my rant. That so very well uh, resonates. Uh, actually, at my old house with my roommates, uh, it, it was very quickly established, or not, over the period of uh, of uh, about a week, uh, I decided that the word uh, problematic was a banned word in our household uh, due to the fact <laughs> that one of my, at the time, dearest friends uh, had come to visit and stay with me for uh, about a week. And uh, this friend was getting a master's degree and in sociology. And boy, was I looking forward to talking about all these sort of issues and whatnot. But very quickly found that pretty much any opinion I offered at all was immediately deemed problematic. And that just ended the conversation, which was yeah, honestly a, a really saddening thing because like there are certain things where it's, I, especially if you are an expert in the field and you have insight into it, I would love to have a conversation and try to figure out different stuff. But yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're just going to short, short circuit, any sort of dialogue, well, you know, that that's not helpful. That's not edifying. Uh, so yes, I very much agree. Mm-hmm. Prob- the word problematic is just, it's just a garbage word used to, to short-circuit conversation. Yeah. And I mean, the most frustrating part of this, this conversation, and it was almost humorous, was a group of philosophers decided that Kant, well, not decided, but the debate was, is Kant too problematic to read because of his racism? Good night. Um, and is Aristotle too problematic to read because of his racism? I mean, it, it, it is an interesting error or not you know, interesting. It is, it is always a saddening thing whenever you read a thinker that you truly admire and then you come across a line that is just clearly racist or clearly sexist. And like, there's just no, mm-hmm. no justifying it. No, like, nope, it's, they were, they were being racist right there. They were being sexist and it really sucks. But at the same time, that doesn't it, like, that doesn't mean that you can't get something out of those thinkers. Uh, and no. to just wipe away Aristotle because he thought non-Athenians were not good, like yeah, that that that, that is not helping. Exactly, and that was kind of where I got with it. And one professor, you know, made a good a good point, um, or made the argument like, well, are, you know, maybe we're going to look back at us, and he's like, will will somebody look at my work and say maybe he has good work, but man, that guy ate meat, so like, can we really, you know? 
is he really too problematic? And I was like, yes, that's exactly the point, is that our our, our standards of what's problematic and not are subjective based on the time that we're living in and the standards that are, are, standards that are constantly evolving and in many, many areas are evolving for the better. Um, but then, you know, and that was kind of my moment of hope, but then it was quickly pushed aside where he's like, but, you know, we're just not, I mean, he's like, as much as I love Aristotle, we're not going to take those parts of him and give him, you know, any kind of look. Which, I mean, um, to be fair, let's not mm-hmm. take the racism of Aristotle or of Kant. Let's not take the you know, creepy sexism of David Foster Wallace or, or, or maybe no. not the sexism, but uh, he wasn't necessarily sexist, but the that creepiness of him. Yeah, the manipulation. manipulation. Yeah, like, let's yeah. not take that from him. But at the same time, like, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you get to disregard the entire thinker. So, yes, I completely you, yeah, and that's part of it is that the, the impact of this. I'm, I'm totally fine with looking at the context that an author's writing within that. I'm, I mean, that that's incredibly valuable and necessary sometimes necessary like i mean we had a conversation about david foster wallace and i don't want to say pat us on the back but like when we brought up the critiques of david foster wallace a few weeks ago and one thing that i guess that we were able to pull out of that is maybe a lot of his is him wrestling with this inner demon and with Mm -hmm. this with these sins these faults these horrible things that he had done and trying to figure out how does that square with humanity and how does that square with you know beauty and goodness and also evil and like you know that doesn't dismiss the things that he had done but i think that that does bring a valuable perspective to his work and we would never have gotten there if we had just said said oh he's done terrible things we're not going to read his work yeah absolutely anyway yeah. i'm just i'm i'm just frustrated with it and i i it, it definitely indicates a part of where the field is going or maybe mm-hmm. already is and i am sad for that You're there's right? something inherently tragic about that indeed yeah uh, my rant, uh, so mine is definitely a bit happier. Uh, I recently, uh, given that I'm going currently stir crazy in my apartment and in desperate need of something to do other than watching TV or whatnot and wanting something creative, I decided to, uh, purchase a, um, a piano keyboard. And I, so I, I, I had, uh, I played piano for about, I think 10 years when I was in, uh, elementary, middle school and high school. And like piano lessons, piano practicing were just these absolutely odious tasks. I hated it. I never got anywhere beyond moderate. And I have been amazed by how just deeply fulfilling and enriching this has been. I have only had it for a couple of days. I have spent probably a collective like six or seven hours on uh, on this. I, I sometimes suffer from insomnia. And so like I woke up this morning at like three in the morning was like, you know what? I'm going to go play some piano. And I've just, yes. I have thoroughly enjoyed it and i kind of look back at young me and just and just think like oh you idiot like what were you thinking uh so man like this has honestly been quite delightful i i think to be fair in part it's because i also now get to pick the the sheet music and so i get to just pick stuff that i think will be fun uh Mm -hmm. as as great as like bach and beethoven and mozart are like they're not quite as stimulating uh for a young middle schooler but like Mm -hmm. being able to play movie soundtracks for example like maybe a little bit more entertaining at least for first uh uh, first kind of foray into it so i don't know i've just Mm -hmm. i've thoroughly enjoyed this that is awesome like so um steven you knew i was minoring in music yeah yeah yeah, that's right yeah yeah so i um yeah so i've been living in apartments and dorms for the last four years and my entire musical output has been going to the practice rooms and I, um, you know, practice a few times a week, a week, but not anywhere close to where I want to. And it's normally just a stamp with my lessons. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm living back at um, my parents' house just to wait out quarantine, 
Um, did we bring him just come back in and leave? He, yeah, he just came back in and then immediately left. Oh, and wait, he's, he's back. Brevin, can you hear us? Yes, now I can. Wow, we're talking Jeez. about piano playing. I had to connect on my phone, and even that, I had to restart my phone to get that to work. I have no idea what's going wow, on. Wow, the Discord gods hate you. Yeah, I don't know if, like, I don't know. Maybe Verizon to, just decided need... that Discord is a malicious software. I don't know. We need to sacrifice like three Zooms to the great Craig. Mm, yeah. Indeed. Mm, he has become indeed. angry with us in our infidelity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So I assume that you um, guys did your rants. Uh, just sec, uh, Sam's finishing up a, a piece and then uh, and then you'll be up next. Okay. No, but I was, so I'm here and I, I finally set up my keyboard again. Um, and now that I have a little bit of space, my, um, my weighted stage piano. And it, I, I realized how much I had missed having access to the piano just right there anytime. Um, it is incredibly edifying and deeply important. So I totally get and, that. Man, we are just on the same page today. But also on the same page, Brevin has thankfully rejoined our rank, ranks. So uh, so what's the rant, uh, Brevin? What's going on? All right. So my rant today is about cooperative board games. And it is a semi-positive rant. Uh, I've been getting into these made easy with Tabletop Simulator uh, these past couple weeks in relative isolation. Uh, one of these games is called Eldritch Horror. Uh, it's a pretty fun game. One to eight players. You play as in, uh, intrepid explorers fighting various monsters of the Cthulhu mythos and trying to save the world. Um, and you can also play solo, which I did some of that today uh thinking that you know with a unified actor no discussion etc etc i could move much more efficiently move items around better all that fun stuff i i I thought it would be simple i i I even played with the most base boss uh just cthulhu straight up um and uh uh, nope uh uh not not good at all uh so far two of my four characters that i'm controlling have died um uh (laughs) there's eldritch tokens blocking movement all over the sea um and uh it's it's in general just just a little bit of a of a rough go um and finally i'm also realizing that the wind condition for the game probably doesn't even have that good of a payoff uh so even if i do win all the my feeling will probably be like huh well thank god that's over uh so my conclusion from all this is uh in short with co-op games they are better played with friends so uh do that you know, there's something very deep about the the payoff not being all that, uh, you know, all that satisfying, especially with a, a Lovecraftian themed board game. In that, like, oh yes, congratulations, you live to see another day, but you're probably gonna die, in, or not probably, you are gonna die anyway. It's probably gonna be horrifying, and your sanity has gone away. So, also <laughs> something, something existential angst, uh, but more, more importantly, Lovecraft and, and Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. It, it is the most discouraging thing ever to lose mate. Uh, a solo board game getting beaten by cardboard are you speaking uh with some experience there i am which game yes i am uh which game which game oh the game it was a uh, it was root solo root um, solo root yes hmm, i haven't heard of that one. Oh, it's an excellent game we should we shall chat about it um offline excellent yes all right uh, okay this has gone on long enough brevin take us home all right uh for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast uh i'm brevin I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, we'll see you around. Probably. Central theme is that the importance of our disposition to the world and to one another. Wait, hold on. I wrote this strangely. Bear with me. Um, I mean, you're quoting him, so...
it really, if anything, he wrote it strangely. Oh, uh, yeah, fair. Uh, uh, to paraphrase, a central theme is the importance of our disposition to the world and to one another as being fundamentally grounded. God damn it. The sentence is so annoyingly written. Um, okay. Paraphrasing. Uh, sorry. To paraphrase a central theme. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase. Use your words. 